my listeners know, the tradition of reflection in the footsteps of St. Thomas Aquinas goes back just about almost to the years, the year of his death and the, the years immediately after his death. He died in 1274. So for about seven centuries, perhaps even for about seven centuries, uh, many theologians, including many Dominicans, have been reflecting on the nature of the church in the footsteps of St. Thomas Aquinas. And they often did so motivated by ecclesial crises and challenges. By the time of the 15th and 16th centuries, there already had developed a rich Thomistic tradition of ecclesiology, which is a fancy term for the theology of the church. And this tradition included giants like the 15th century Dominican Juan de Torquemada. When I say Torquemada, you probably think of the Spanish inquisitor, the infamous Torquemada, who was the nephew of the theologian that I will be discussing. And then there was also in the 16th century, the great Italian Dominican and Cardinal Thomas Vio Cajetan. This beautiful tradition of Thomistic ecclesiology or theology of the church continued into the 20th century in places like with the saintly seminary professor Charles Journet. He would go on to participate at the Second Vatican Council and later be named Cardinal by Paul VI. Today, I will draw on these three thinkers, Juan de Torquemada, Thomas Biocagetan, and Charles Journet, as I give an introductory sketch of two major ecclesiological themes, the church as the mystical body of Christ and papal infallibility. Those who received some of the uh, emails and advertisements for this talk will be wondering what happened to my third topic, which I fully intended to treat, which is the church as an instrument or the instrument of salvation. And I realized as I was then finishing my preparations that it would simply be too much. But for those of you who are eager to pursue this very rich line of reflection, the church as an instrument of salvation, I heartily recommend to you a wonderful book in English translation by uh, Father Benoit Dominique de la Sujol entitled Introduction to the Mystery of the Church published only four or five years ago by the Catholic University of America Press. As I proceed, I'll be using a very short PowerPoint uh, slide, a set of slides to give you some images of the three figures about which I'll be speaking. Some of you may never have heard of them before. I'll have one quote from Jonet as well, but my PowerPoint is only going to be a very occasional pedagogical tool. I come from a particular school of pedagogy in which we have a lovely little axiom or phrase, which is, sir, madam, for your lecture this evening, will you be using PowerPoint or do you have something to say? So I hope to have something to say and therefore will strictly limit myself to the shockingly Spartan kind of PowerPoint, which I assembled as quickly as possible so as not to lose study time. I deliberately begin my presentation with the theme of the mystical body of Christ and not with the theme of papal infallibility or papal primacy. Why? 
it is perhaps a perennial temptation in the Catholic theologies of the church, Catholic ecclesiologies, to dive into apologetics or very juridical issues, for example, questions about papal or episcopal power, and then to lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that the church is ultimately a mystery revealed to us by God. And I'm convinced that only this broader context of the church as a great mystery can we, with this context, can we then truly perceive well the proper meaning of hotly disputed and debated doctrines such as papal infallibility. The theology of the mystical body, the church has firm roots in scripture. We think most of all of the epistles of St. Paul. This theology of the mystical body was beautifully developed by St. Augustine. It was deepened over the ages by many saints, including St. Thomas Aquinas, and then later in modernity by various figures, including Pope Pius XII, and then also in the teaching of Vatican II in the document on the church, Lumen Gentium, the light of the nations. The theme of the mystical body stands at the very heart, the core of St. Thomas Aquinas's vision of the church. That is to say that Thomas gives us his most important insights on the nature of the church while he is articulating his understanding of Christ as head of the church. And he does this in a beautiful section of his study of Christ in the Summa in the third part in question eight. So for St. Thomas, the church is an extension of Christ. And these two mysteries, the incarnate word and all of his historical words and deeds that were for our salvation and the church, these two mysteries must be seen together. Charles Journet, the Swiss uh, diocesan priest and later cardinal, took a teaching on the mystical body and expanded it into a beautiful grand synthesis that is deeply biblical, it's patristic and highly original. From the 1940s to the 1960s, Journet composed a massive multi-volume ecclesiological treatise uh, entitled The Church of the most of which has never been translated from French, only part of it. And today I'll be drawing upon the second volume of this series as I present Journet on the mystical body. After I cover Journet, I'll be moving on to Torquemada and Cajetan on papal infallibility. For those of you who do not read French, you can gain a glimpse of the wisdom of Journet in the English translation of an anthology of his entitled Theology of the Church. It was published a few years ago by Ignatius Press. Let me move into my PowerPoint and show you briefly an image of um, the Swiss theologian and cardinal. So was born in 1891 in Geneva, died in 1975, a very good and long and fruitful life. As Journet reflects on the mystical body of Christ, he seeks to move between what he considers to be two theological extremes. On the one hand, Martin Luther had transformed the meaning of the notion of the mystical body 
so that, on, that, so that it only referred to the invisible church, meaning the community of true believers, those who were truly justified. With Luther, we have an invisible body, a communion of saints who are now being pondered in abstraction from the church's sacramental life and the work of her pastors. So the church's hierarchical structure, for example. We will come back to Luther, to whom Jornet dedicated a long section of his book, his second volume on the Church of the Word Incarnate. So that is one extreme on the theology of the mystical body, reducing it to an invisible body, a community of true believers. The other extreme that Jornet indicates goes back to the counter-reformation theology of Robert Bellamin, the great Jesuit cardinal and papal advisor, who centered his whole ecclesiology on the visible church, the creed, the sacraments, and hierarchical structures, but with too little attention given to the supernatural and invisible elements. Jornet thinks that both Luther and Robert Bellarmine pursued somewhat unfruitful paths of theological reflection. Instead, the Swiss theologian um, seeks to keep within a single coherent vision the visible and invisible, the mystical and ecclesiastical, the ecclesial hierarchy, race and religion. Jonet pursues this project in his typical theological style, which is neither a commentary on the Summa of St. Thomas Aquinas, that was a very popular style in Catholic theology, practiced by the likes of Cardinal Cajetan and many other thinkers, Jonet's style is also not that of an apologetic tract. Rather, it is a kind of flowing narrative that constantly engages with scripture, the fathers, the popes, the councils, Aquinas with his modern commentators, but also mystics and spiritual writers such as Francis de Sales. And then contemporaries, the great Protestant theologian Karl Barth or the great Catholic ecclesiologist Eve Congar. Some of my learned listeners might say at this point that someone like Reginald Garigou similar interlocutors, but I find Jonet's approach to be less polemical than that of Garigou Lagrange, more attentive to modern exegesis and even semi-patristic in its meditative style, but all the while remaining rigorously metaphysical. In short, Jonet does not fit well into standard narratives about what so-called 20th century neo-scholasticism was about, because it is ultimately a form of scholastic theology that he practices. So I've given you a short introduction to Jonet, and I will now dive directly and more directly into the theme of the mystical body. So here he is. Uh, expounding a teaching on the foundation of scripture, tradition, St. Augustine, and St. Thomas Aquinas. Jonet is clearly drawn to the theme of the mystical body, partly because of its beautifully synthetic power. He is able to integrate with ease and great insight the image of Christ the head with other biblical teachings, such as Christ the bridegroom, Christ the high priest praying in the midst of the church, Christ the firstborn of many brethren, uh, 
or the joining image of the vine and the branches and many other biblical themes. Like the fathers of the church and like St. Thomas Aquinas, Journet delights in drawing out the connections between these different biblical perspectives on the same ecclesial mystery. And this is a task that proceeds largely by intuition, which comes out of long contemplation undertaken while sitting at the feet of the saintly commentators of sacred scripture. This trait of Jonet's theology, this deeply contemplative mode of theologizing, helps us to understand why he was a spiritual master for priests, religious and laity alike. Jonet was a beloved priest who composed short accessible works of spirituality, who loved to teach children's catechesis, who tires, tirelessly preached to Carmelite nuns and befriended the Carthusian monks near Freiburg, Switzerland, in whose monastery cemetery he was later buried. Jonet connects the doctrine of Christ as head of the church with the Greek Eastern patristic theme of salvation as the recapitulation of all things in Christ. This theme of recapitulation is a biblical notion, especially from St. Paul, that was first systematized by a great second century church father, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon. Christ came to transform all of creation. He came to draw all things to himself. And he does so already by his incarnation, even before the cross and the resurrection. He does this by uniting a created, a human nature, to his divinity. It is the first act of the Son in the restoration of humanity. In a qualified sense, we can say that Christ joins all of humanity to himself. For example, in the sense that he draws all human beings to him through the preaching of the gospel and the attracting power of God's invisible grace that is in a way at work everywhere, even among those who still refuse to convert and remain in darkness. Here, Jornet builds on Aquinas' insight that Christ is the head of all human beings, even of sinners, in that every human person is potentially a member of the mystical body, is being called to full integration into that body to share in sanctifying grace and ultimately in glory. I should note in passing that Jonet, in connection with this teaching of Christ as the head of humanity, also develops a very elaborate account of the salvation of non-Christians and its possibility. He did this in the very same second volume of his great mis uh, book, The Church of the Word Incarnate, and he published it several years before Vatican II. Christ's headship implies that he mediates all grace through his sacred humanity. So Christ is head in that all of the life that the body that we, the members of the body, receive, all share in divine life, comes through the head from whom flows this energy, this life. For Aquinas, as for Journet, the church as the mystical body is above all a body of grace, an organic unity of human beings throughout history, 
from the old covenant era forward, and even an organic unity of all human beings and grace and of the holy angels, those who participate in sanctifying grace, and the mystical body is a body of charisms where the faithful receive various gifts from a share in the apostolic office to prophecy or speaking in tongues. And here's Renee's building on the teaching of St. Paul in the letter to the Ephesians chapter four. Jonet gives to this doctrine of the church as a body of grace, his own unique stamp as he develops an, an insight from Thomas Aquinas on the instrumentality of Christ's humanity. And he takes that theme of Christ's headship and the instrumentality of his humanity into develops it into a broad vision of grace as something which has been marked by Jesus's own grace-filled humanity and his human saving deeds during his earthly lifetime. In Thomistic circles, Jonet is famous for his idea of crystal forming grace, which I will be explaining to you. And Jonet worked out much of this teaching of crystal forming grace in his long chapters on the mystical body of the second volume. If there are any Angelican students of mine or alumni who had me as a teacher or listening, this will ring a few bells from some of your courses in the past. So for St. Thomas, as for Jonet and the Thomistic tradition, God is the first efficient cause of grace, somewhat like God the creator is the first efficient cause of being, of existence. God alone is the ultimate source of grace, and it is a free gift. But the omnipotent God can transmit created gifts such as grace, charity, through the instrumentality of his creatures. And here, Christ's humanity is the most powerful, magnificent instrument of all. The grace poured out upon us is the grace, a share in the grace that has been and continues to be present in Christ the head, the grace that sanctifies Jesus's own humanity. Christ is head of the church as man in his human nature. By his human nature, Christ acts as a secondary and instrumental cause that depends wholly on this first, the principal cause, which is uh, God, the Trinity, and so also Christ in his divine nature, the principal cause of grace. And through this human nature of Christ, and particularly through his human saving actions, such as his ascetical acts, but also his other acts, such as rising from the dead, he transmits a share in God's life, which we call grace, a participation in divine life. And the two natures of Christ, the human and the divine, operate together in a marvelous synergy, in perfect cooperation, one depending on the other, no tension or competition between them. This is a Christology that goes back to the dogmatic definition of Christ's two natures at the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451, which is crucial for the work of St. Thomas on the saving understanding the person and saving work of Christ. So we have a river of grace that flows from the divine fountain through Christ's humanity, through his human heart, 
into the hearts of all believers. But this is not a generic grace. The water of grace, if we want to use that metaphor, has been colored by the heart of Christ through which it has flown and continues to flow. The created grace, for example, the created grace of charity or other gifts are what we call in scholasticism formal causes of our perfection and salvation, formal modifications of the soul, perfections and elevations of our capacity to know and to love God and neighbor. Jeunet proposes that the interior state of Christ's heart, such as his suffering love for us on the cross, has left a trace on the grace and the charity that is given to us. And so the Holy Spirit, sent to us by Christ, begins to incline our hearts according to the very inclinations of the human heart of Christ. Hence, we speak of Christoforming grace or Christoforming charity being conformed to Christ. The grace of the crucified Lord leads his disciples on the path of love, a path in which we grow, for example, in our willingness to suffer, our willingness to do penance for the salvation of our neighbor and our own salvation, a fitting theme for the season of Lent. This same grace inclines us also to other virtuous acts in the footsteps of Christ, for example, to give courageous witness to the truth as he did in his preaching, in his ministry, and in his passion. Thomas Aquinas especially developed these ideas related to Christoforming grace in his study of the resurrection of Christ. You can find it in the Summa of Theology in question 56 of the third part. And this is a great source for Jonet to take Thomas's thought further and enrich it with much greater detail. Jonet takes the principles, the basic insights he finds in sections such as question 56 of the Summa on the resurrection of Christ and begins to apply them to other mysteries of Christ, like the baptism of Jesus or his passion. Jonet shows that for Thomas in Christ's act of rising from the dead, the very act of coming back to life, the power to resurrect bodies is present and then passes through time to ultimately bring about our bodily resurrection at the end of time. The deed, of course, which began a saving work which already began in the Assumption of Mary, which Jonet would attribute not just to the Trinity, but to Christ acting in his humanity to resurrect his own mother. The focus is not simply here on the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ who dwells in heaven, but more specifically following the precise language of St. Thomas Aquinas that Jonet picks up, it is Christ in his act of rising from the dead who has a share in resurrecting power in his humanity, the power that comes from God by which he will raise all human beings at the end of time. The spiritual deed, excuse me, the spiritual power within this deed passes through time, says Jonet, bringing us to life a share in the life that Christ possessed on Easter Sunday. He thinks that we receive, for example, a share in this life in our baptism. The power of the resurrection is present so that sin is taken away and a share in Christ's new life 
and his virtues like charity and courage or fortitude are imparted. Journey illustrates this idea of a power that resides within the resurrecting Christ who ultimately touches human beings all through subsequent history by using the following example. He says, imagine a star that is invisible to you and its light has been refracted off of a planet that no longer exists, but the light continues to move through the universe and comes to you. You see the light, you do not see its hidden source. And the cause, the intermediary cause which refracted the light is a planet that once existed, but has passed out of existence. And so here, by analogy, the hidden source of the light, the star you do not see, is like the Holy Trinity, and also therefore Christ in his divine nature. And the intermediary cause is a passing human action, suffering and dying, rising again. The light is like the grace that comes to you. But the planet which no longer exists has had an effect on the way the light moves. This is a beautiful, if limited, metaphor, which or analogy that Jornet uses to try to illustrate something of this power of Christ, which moves from God through his humanity, through particular historical acts, and brings to us a grace that has been colored by his own sacred humanity. This brings me to my last remarks on Jornet's Thomistic Ecclesiology. He keeps his vision of the church centered on Christ as he articulates the unity of the visible and the invisible. I will quote from his Theology of the Church. This is the book which I mentioned before, and I will turn here to page 61, and I will use my little PowerPoint slide so the sisters will be sharing the screen with you. This is my one long quote of the day. It's on. He says, Christ became incarnate, not in order to act from a distance, but rather to touch the wounds of our human nature. Jonet shows the interplay of the visible and the invisible in Christ himself, meaning he brings salvation precisely through his human touch, through his visible presence to his disciples his saving deeds in the flesh, his interaction with the sick, the blind, the lame. And I come back to the quote, the second line. It is contact that he wills to continue in time. So Christ touching us both visibly and invisibly. Contact that he wills to continue in time when on the point of leaving us, meaning the ascension, he instituted a visible hierarchy in our midst as a corporeal instrument in order to maintain this sensible contact with us. It is this contact that, uh, that by means of the sacraments of the new law, the sacraments of the church, which are like the hands of Christ reaching out across space and time, conferring on us this sanctity of Christ." End of the quote. So what he's doing here is continuing his reflection on the way in which the humanity of Christ is a unique instrument to bring us a share in grace. And he's taking a time-old uh, principle in Catholic theology that we find in antiquity and, and the medieval and modern times in Catholic thought, namely that the church is a kind of quasi-continuation of the incarnation, and Jornet gives it his own unique uh, mark or twist 
by applying the Christology here that sees Christ in his humanity as a saving instrument that brings us grace. Jermaine's mystical vision of the church in her visible structures, especially her sacraments, stands in contrast with the ecclesiology of Martin Luther, which Jornet explores at great length in his second volume of the Church of the Word Incarnate. He explores Luther's thought with the help of Protestant scholars and their analyses of Luther. Jornet's approach with Luther is one of serious engagement without excessive polemics, but it is also firm in its Catholic convictions. What he sees in Luther is a reductive approach to the mystery of Christ's action in the church and Christ's headship of the church and her members who are the members of Christ. A theology where Jornet thinks Luther is so focused on the preaching of the word that Christ's action through visible mediations like bishops and priests and sacramental rites becomes obscured. Jornet roots the difficulties of Luther to the omnipresent doctrine of justification by faith alone. This last theme of justification by faith alone also brings us to the theology of merit. A Catholic approach to merit is best undertaken with a focus on the mystical body of Christ and the share in the merits of Christ the head. And this Jornet does as well in his great book on the church a theme that I unfortunately have to skip as we move toward our second major part, which is that of papal infallibility. The theology of the mystical body already contains in seed form some key insights that help us to better understand a Thomistic approach to the hotly contested and widely misunderstood question of papal infallibility. As Jonet points out, the graces of the apostolic, the papal and episcopal offices are among the many graces that flow without ceasing from Christ the head to his members. And so they render Christ's voice audible after his ascension, giving us guidance in the church's ceaseless meditation of sacred scripture. Great theology often comes to birth in the heat of controversy. Think of St. Athanasius's teaching on the eternal son of God against the Arians. Think of St. Augustine and his theology of grace and his controversy with Pelagius and other figures of his time. The late medieval church to which I turn as we study Trocamada and papal infallibility, this late medieval church suffered a great deal from schisms, anti-popes, power struggles between popes and the crown, the black death, and from a general spiritual malaise. In this context of the medieval, late medieval church, a powerful movement called conciliarism emerged, especially in the 14th and 15th centuries. And this movement of conciliarism argued for the superiority of a general or ecumenical council over the Pope, partly because this path seemed the only way forward to overcome deep ecclesial divisions. 
In the 15th century, the Spanish Dominican Juan de Torquemada accomplished as a theologian and also as a canon lawyer or canonist, as we say, stepped into the fray with his writings and ecclesial service, his books, his teaching, and his work of advising Pope Eugene IV at the Council of Florence in the 15th century. Torquemada authored what was perhaps the first major comprehensive theological book on the church, the so-called Summa of the Church, Summa de Ecclesia, a work that has been largely forgotten. The last printing I know of is from the 16th century, and it's so old that you can easily download for free and legally a full PDF copy. But you can only read it if your Latin is good. Almost no one reads Torquemada anymore. And I discovered his thought thanks to the great work of the German Dominican and historian of theology, uh, Ulrich Horst, and a disciple of Horst, the lay scholar Thomas Prügel, who is currently professor of church history at the University of Vienna. Here's a book by Horst, which you can if you know German. For the history of councils and ecclesiology, German is a must if you want to dive deeply into the matter. Ada benefited from a fantastically broad formation and long, hard experience. Before the Council of Florence, he was involved with the controversial Council of Basel in Switzerland and engaged very directly with the proponents of the so-called conciliarist position. The conciliarists, let me show you an image here of Torquemada. So on the PowerPoint, which you have, it's on the left, a somewhat updated colored version of a portrait of Torquemada at his desk. And on the right in the uh, PowerPoint, you can't see it. We'll see it in a second, we'll get there. Um, you'll be seeing, there it is, there we are. You see an image which is from the Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is near his tomb, on the side chapel of that great Dominican church in Rome. And there you see uh, Torquemada in the Dominican habit and on his knees presenting uh, souls to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The conciliarists held that the, the opponents of Torquemada held that the papal power could only be checked by a superior power. And that power they attributed to a general council, a meeting of the bishops. Torquemada says that for the conciliarists, the church has the fullness of power from Christ and possesses this power as a cause so that the church is a cause of shared by others, including the Pope. Here, ecclesial power is exercised as a service by the Pope, but it can also be exercised by a council, especially when the Pope fails to serve the church. The conciliarists read Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, the famous passage where Christ gives to Peter the keys of the kingdom as a teaching on the reception of the keys of the kingdom by the church in the person of Peter, who receives it in the figure 
of the church or as a representative of the church. And so Peter's successor received their authority, not in the succession from the previous Pope or from Peter, but as something given to them or delegated by the church. Christ gives the keys and the power to bind and loose on earth and in heaven to the whole church, and she in turn delegates this power to the Pope, say the conciliarists. On the contrary, Turkamata reads this gospel text, Matthew 16, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Turkamata reads it to signify a direct commission of Peter by Christ. Here, the Pope, that is Peter, does not represent the church and he is not acting as one who is a figure of another or depends on another. Rather, the Pope in succession, in the succession of Peter, receives a power by which he represents Christ to the church and has authority from Christ to act in the church instead of having authority from the church to exercise a particular service within her. Turkamata takes the majority at the Council of Basel to task for ignoring the example set by the apostles themselves at the Council of Jerusalem recounted in the book of Acts chapter 15, when there was a first decision made by the gathering of the apostles on the matter of uh, circumcision or non-circumcision of Gentile converts to Christianity. Here, Torquemada says, the apostles decide together, and yet clearly Peter plays a major or important role. At the Council of Basel, the bishops, successors of the apostles, acted without Peter's successor. Here, the body acted without the head or the one who represents Christ the head. It would be the equivalent of the Jerusalem Council happening without Peter the apostle. Torquemada finds support for his pro-papal position in Christ's words to Peter at the Last Supper, where he has recounted in the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 22, Jesus instructs Peter, in the presence of the other apostles, he instructs Peter to strengthen his brethren in the future, after uh, Peter comes back to convert from his own denial of Christ that Jesus has foretold. Torquemada notes that this command is given to Peter alone and not to all the apostles. After you get up, go says. What does this mean? Jesus prays that Peter's faith may not fail and instructs him to go and strengthen his brethren. Torquemada employs a key distinction, a distinction between the Pope's personal faith and the privilege of the chair of Peter. The successors of Peter follow the great apostle and share in his privileges insofar as they exercise the office attached to the chair of Peter. But after the death of the apostles, whose faith never failed, even though he sinned by denying Christ, after Peter and after the death of the apostles, Torquemada says, no individual believer is guaranteed the gift of always remaining in the faith. This gift is not inherited. It is not part of the succession of Peter. No individual inherits this gift. The Roman church, 
with the Petrine chair, the Episcopal chair that represents the gifts, the gifts attached to the chair of the Bishop of Rome, who is the Pope. This Roman church with her Petrine chair receives the blessing of not failing in faith. So that the Pope who sits in the chair and exercises the office attached to, the to this chair with its graces and blessings may not fail. The Pope's privilege is therefore strictly bound to the exercise of his office, his office says Torquemada. What he is doing is giving a strict condition for the fruitful exercise of the Petrine ministry. Torquemada follows St. Thomas Aquinas as he affirms papal infallibility based on Luke 22 and Matthew 16 and other passages of scripture and on tradition. At the same time, Torquemada gives a noteworthy list of conditions without which the Pope cannot be assured of the Holy Spirit's guidance in his teaching office in the exercise of an infallible teaching. Before proposing a teaching to be held firmly by all the faithful to be held as divine teaching before teaching infallibly, Torquemada says the Pope must consult with learned men and especially the College of Cardinals. He may not act alone, nor does a limited theological consultation with a few close advisors suffice. Were he to do so, Torquemada says, then the Pope would simply be offering to the church his private opinion, which is not binding on the faithful. That opinion might fail in faith because it is not the proper exercise of the chair of Peter. Torquemada works out this distinction between the chair of Peter and the private faith of the holder of the chair, the distinction between a proper infallible teaching and the possible of erroneous teachings by looking at a list of his historical examples of erroneous papal teachings. These were widely discussed in medieval canon law and also by the theologians. Torquemada develops extensive theories as well on how popes are, relate, are to relate to general or ecumenical councils, especially when, as happened in the 15th century, there were multiple claimants to the papal throne, thus creating a great ecclesial crisis. And here, Torquemada's extensive training in canon law and his hard experience comes to the fore. I've given you an extremely brief overview of Torquemada on papal infallibility. I will, in closing, describe in very broad terms his theological method. The Spanish Dominican seeks the foundation of his theology in a careful reading of scripture. This does not mean that he resolves all exegetical questions for us, but we should recognize that his starting point is methodologically very sound. Next, he situates, situates himself at the crossroad between dogmatic theology and canon law and engages with a long tradition of medieval, juridical, canonical reflection about the nature of ecclesial authority. We might recall that in the Middle Ages, canon law had a strong speculative creative strand. Torquemada displays a very good awareness of the complexities and problems of history, such as popes who pronounce bad teachings, 
He does not turn a blind eye to the struggles and failings of past popes, nor does he explain these things away with easy solutions. He has a strong awareness of human fragility and therefore proposes that popes can teach infallibly in very tightly controlled circumstances. I turn from Torquemada to a very different kind of personality. I move forward only one or two generations to the really the early 16th century. We'll be switching back to my little amateur PowerPoint to what I think is actually the last slide, which has the dates of uh, Thomas Leo Cajetan from central, the central Italian peninsula in the town of Gaeta, hence the name Cajetan, Cajetanus in Latin, born in 1469, died in 1534, a Dominican, a priest, master of the order, papal advisor, cardinal, interlocutor, and debate partner, or rather uh, debate of Martin Luther, whom he met in person and debated publicly in person in Southern Germany. Cajetan has become famous as the great commentator on the Summa of Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Many scholars in theology have spoken of this massive commentary on the Summa over the past century. Few of them have actually read any part thereof. In the section on faith, which is at the beginning of the second part of the second part of the Summa of St. Thomas, we have a very short article on papal teaching and the church's infallibility that comes through the teaching of the Pope. And this text has become a classic and inspired dozens of Thomistic thinkers over the centuries. Cajetan articulated a vision of the papacy as he commented on this passage. But in fact, Cajetan's most important writing on papal infallibility is not found in the commentary on the Summa. It is rather found in a short work in Latin entitled On the Comparison of the Authority of the Pope and the Council, a work composed by Cajetan in 1511 in a few months, just over the summer, sweating in the Roman heat just across the Roman Forum at Santa Sabina while he was still master general. To my knowledge, this text has never been translated into English. A later work of Cajetan might also be mentioned here. It is a response to Martin Luther precisely on the question of the papacy, including infallibility, which has been translated into English. It comes from the year 1521. So this is not the fruit of a direct debate with Luther, but was written after Cajetan had debated with Luther on other thorny issues. And the work is entitled in translation on the divine institution of the pontifical office in the person of Peter. I'll be drawing on the first of the two works I mentioned, the untranslated text on the comparison of the authority of the Pope and the council. And I will briefly also quote or summarize from the commentary on the Summa. There is much more that one could say about Cajetan actually in many other texts, including his biblical commentaries, but that is for another day. Cajetan affirms the primacy, and so the primacy of papal power, meaning also over 
Council by invoking two key gospel passages. Matthew 16, verse 18, which takes us back to the gift of the keys of the kingdom, Peter being declared the rock by Christ. And then a text I have not yet mentioned today, which is John 21, especially starting around verse 17. Jesus meets Peter on the lakeshore, the Sea of Tiberias, and three times commands him to feed his sheep. Cajetan highlights that in these passages, it is Peter alone who is addressed. It's not Peter and a group of apostles. And in the case of John 21, it is Peter and the beloved disciple, but Jesus is clearly addressing Peter alone. In John 21, by the triple commandment, feed my sheep, Peter the fisherman is designated as the universal shepherd. For Cajetan, Christ gave the church a monarchical structure, a kingly, a royal structure. That is, ecclesial authority comes not from below, not from a body, such as a people, but from above, such that Christ gave to Peter and to the apostles a supernatural power and authority to teach and to govern. The themes of papal primacy and the church's monarchical structure undergird Cajetan's thought on infallibility. We can see infallibility as sort of a species within the broader topic or the genus of papal primacy. Cajetan confirms his exegesis of John 21 with an appeal to patristic authorities. But in fact, he prefers especially to focus on a reading of the literal sense of scripture. Cajetan was adept at the original biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew and liked correcting mistranslations he found in the popular standard Latin Vulgate text. He says, he adds the theological argument that a single universal pastor is a more effective means to ecclesial unity than a multitude of such pastors. Think of, for example, a multitude of equal patriarchs. This is an argument that he draws from St. directly from Summa. Second part of the second part, question one. Cajetan argues against theologians who would prefer to see a Senate or a freely constituted people who then delegate power to a temporary head, such as the Pope, who deny, therefore, the monarchical ecclesial structure. The Italian Dominican, Cajetan, goes on to acknowledge that the other apostles received a somewhat similar power to teach and to govern from Christ, as we can see in other gospel passages, one thinks especially of Matthew chapter 18. But Cajetan insists that Peter's office alone has successors. This last argument clearly goes beyond the realm of exegesis. Cajetan's commentary on the Summa of St. Thomas nicely summarizes some of his key arguments on behalf of papal infallibility. Christ's direct commission of Peter in John 21 shows that the Lord Jesus did not first give a special power to the church, which she then delegates to the Pope. Rather, Peter and his successors are empowered directly by Christ. The Pope is the vicar of Christ so that he represents Christ the head in visible form. So Cajetan likes to speak of the Pope as the head of the church in a secondary sense, 
as rendering visible and effective the headship of Christ and the rule and teaching of Christ the head, a participation in the work of Christ as head. The Pope speaks in the person of Christ and also can speak in the person of the whole church because the church cannot be in error, the whole church cannot be in error, the Pope cannot be in error when he speaks in virtue of his office on a matter of faith. Though this spiritual protection is not guaranteed to the Pope as a private person, says Cajetan. We can be assured of the Spirit's guidance because Christ at his ascension promised that he would not abandon his church and therefore would not let his whole church fall into deep error or heresy. Unlike other scholastic theologians, Cajetan does not tell us in this text, nor elsewhere, as far as I'm aware, how the Pope is to prepare an infallible definition or how the sovereign pontiff, for example, is to use scripture and tradition, conditions that were enumerated by Trocamada and would be enumerated by others, Cajetan does not give us. Why? Perhaps because of the polemical setting and context a period of deep ecclesial reform, a time is in the papacy of, uh, and soon the challenge of Luther and schism and the Protestant uh, Reformation. The great historian that I've mentioned, uh, Ulrich Horst, the German Dominican who wrote this beautiful book on Torquemada and Cajetan argues that the Italian feared interminable discussions on the matter of exactly what the Pope must do in order to properly speak infallibly. And that this would lead to ultimately an undermining of papal authority. This is not to say that Cajetan became the ultimate champion of papal privilege and primacy. Others in the early modern era would, for example, argue that the Pope, even as a private individual believer, can never fall into heresy. Like many medieval and early modern theologians and canonists or canon lawyers, Cajetan acknowledged precisely this possibility of a Pope falling into error in his private person. Why he sets out an emergency procedure whereby the Christian emperor, the cardinals, and the bishops can assemble in council to depose a heretical pope. After which, Cajetan says, the cardinals are together to elect a new successor of Peter. A general council can also regulate dubious papal elections. He is clearly thinking of problems in the 15th century. Cajetan offers much detail in the case of a heretical pope, probably because he realizes that this case provides handy ammunition to his opponents, the conciliarists who think that the ecumenical or general council must be superior to the pope. The pope's power comes from above, yet it is the human decision of the church's cardinals to connect one individual with the papal office. And this decision in extreme circumstances can be reversed, says Cajetan, as long as conditions are considered and met. What is Cajetan doing? 
he's not being a rebellious son of the church. He's composing a treatise while master general of the order, living in Rome, who would soon be named cardinal of the church herself and a close papal advisor and legate. He did this in the interest of pushing back against overzealous reformers in an age of Renaissance popes. He did this also in the interest of preserving a reform movement of ecclesial reform against the critics who might seek to label him as a Trojan horse who tries to bring bad conciliarist teaching into the heart of the church. Turkamata you can depose an immoral pope. He says that is one thing. A heretical pope, that is another matter. Let me close this whirlwind tour of Cajetan's ecclesiology with a simple observation. In his response to Luther on papal infallibility, the translated text that I mentioned earlier on the divine institution of the pontificate, he chooses to meet his debate partner on neutral ground meaning he approaches the matter almost exclusively with biblical arguments, above all, being attentive to the literal sense of the text, with not a great deal of appeal to tradition. He was meeting Luther's biblical arguments with his own biblical arguments. Cajetan was not just a scholastic thinker, he was also a humanist who learned the biblical languages, immersed himself in rabbinic exegesis and devoted immense time to the production of original biblical commentaries. He commented on the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Old Testament historical books, and the entire New Testament. We might say with a little note of irony that much of Cajetan's style of Thomism can be a model for our time. 